Welcome to a special episode of Carrying Wayward. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Rochelle Castellano. In this episode, we're joined by special guest Jen, who you may know as Rupert Gaze, to discuss the interesting choice of artwork featured in the Green Room in Season 4, Episode 22, Lucifer Rising. Let's get the show on the road. Jen, welcome to Carrying Wayward. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're incredibly happy to have you here. So welcome. Um, for our listeners who may not know you, uh, Jen returned to the Supernatural fandom after many years of being out of it. She's currently working on a very long Supernatural fan fiction and produces other Supernatural content on TikTok and other social sites. Jen, is there anything else you'd like to add? Not really. I think that's kind of most of it, right? I love being involved in fandom. Um, I usually don't return to a fandom once I'm done with it, but there's just something about Supernatural that pulled me back in. And now we're here. Yes, uh, definitely. Now, just kind of for some context uh, for Rochelle, I have been following your uh, TikTok for some time now. And uh, one of the reasons why we're here is because I saw your TikTok where you discussed The Swing uh, by Jean-Noré Fragonard. And this is kind of, you know, this started a conversation uh, that led us here. But you're doing this entire rewrite of Supernatural through your fanfic. Would you like to tell us maybe how many Supernatural episodes you've seen? I'm very bad at watching TV shows in general, even if I'm very into something. So I do think it's very funny that um, like I've seen the first three seasons, right? And then I watch season eight live. So, you know, that's the normal uh, order that you would go in one, two, three and eight. Of course. And then I've seen, as of right now, 34% of the episodes. I have the entire list on my phone. Um, to give you guys further context, uh, there are some episodes that people really love within the fandom, such as The Man Who Would Be King, which I saw this year. <gasps> um, and the first time I ever saw Lazarus Rising in its entirety, and not just the YouTube clip, was in August last year. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, and there's other ones too, like Swan Song. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anything with Demon <laughs> Dean? Who's to say? I write a lot of Demon Dean. Have I actually seen a canonical episode? No. Have I watched Scooby Natural though? Yes, because I have priorities. Um, and, you know, I, I did see the end under protest and did not care for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, okay. I do blame Living Lives, a film major for a while. I was getting my master's because now every time I watch Supernatural or almost anything, I'm like, hmm, I just don't know. It's, there's definitely a lot of it. So to kind of like bring us back into uh, the discussion about uh, the, the green room, I just wanted to mention also that Rochelle is with us because she has a bachelor's degree in fine arts. So we thought that we could put that to good use today. Finally, after all this year, all these years, my parents can say, oh, you're doing something with that degree. 
I mean, if it helps, <laughs> my undergrad was in a sociology, so I am not a sociologist right now. I joke about it because my family has been, you know, it's the easy thing to to laugh at me about, but truly I am so happy with that degree and I would never, I would go back and do it again and again. It's, uh, it's so enlightening. And the great, great part about art history is you always look at it in context of actual history and what's happening around. So you learn a lot about the world. Um, so it teaches you a lot of also about what's important to people, um, through visual imagery. So I'm excited to be here and I'm excited that you're here, Jen. And thank you for having both of us, Mary. Oh, you, you're so lovely. Both of you. <laughs> All right. So Jen, I don't know, like where, if you had maybe some ideas of where you'd like to start, is there a specific painting? Like, do you want to talk about like maybe the genre of painting first? Um, yeah, we could maybe talk about, um, I say Rococo. I feel like Rochelle called it, uh, pronounced it a little different. I feel like I've heard it both ways. Um, but I do think that's really interesting since Rochelle specifically mentioned when you're looking at art history, it's so huge, especially for uh, looking at periods of history where you're not necessarily having um, photographs or maybe a lot of modern journalism and everything, but you can look at these paintings and uh, like Rochelle had said, get an idea of what's going on historically, what's important to people at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think having Rococo paintings specifically uh, within the beautiful room is very, very interesting, or as I would say, absolutely bonkers, insane, Eric Kripke, what were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a Kripke thing for sure. Because that's the thing, right? Like this was a very intentional um, artistic choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to pay a license to use pieces of fine art. Um, I did try to do some Googling to see about how much money it would cost. I couldn't really find anything um, for these pieces of historical art. If it's maybe a more modern piece of, say, photography that has a living photographer photographer, maybe it could be a few hundred to a few thousand dollars. But either way, um, most TV shows aren't using pieces of actual fine art um, depicted because it's extra money and they'd probably rather spend it on music or something else. So, um, and we also know Eric Kripke, maybe even more so than some of the other showrunners of Supernatural, had a very tight hold on the aesthetics of the show. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I like I don't know if he personally was necessarily trolling through art Wikipedia at 2 a.m. trying to garner the meaning of all of these paintings, but emails had to have happened. Some consideration had to go into these. I mean, for sure. At the very least, you know, he liked the style. Like he chose something very specific because he could have gone for something elaborate that wasn't necessarily Rococo or Baroque or, you know, like so there was definitely a choice there. Yeah, exactly. And I also had kind of wondered, too, why he elected to use these older paintings versus, say, more modern art, especially as, you know, obviously this is after he was no longer being the showrunner. But when we see Heaven, it's this very austere, cold place. And it almost seems like you would rather see, I don't know, some cubism, a Picasso abstract art, modern art. But instead, we see a lot of historical art. Yes, exactly. 
I sort of wonder um, if the particular inclusion of the of the Feigenau, the swing, has anything to do with a commentary on, it was sort of the first time where uh, works of art were not religious based. They were sort of starting to move out of, of basically your classic sort of religious patronage and into something that was more of an investigation of um, what what is happiness what is love what is all of these like things that are um i read somewhere um but anything that it represents the f's right so frivolous and um uh um fluffy and all of those really crazy things to describe these works of art and and much uh much more away from from uh religious paintings and given sort of what's happening in the green room and with supernatural um, and sort of that uh, that whole storyline with the angels. I'm trying also to be careful. How many spoilers can I say here? Just on a side note, I think you can go ahead with the spoilers. Like we we know this is an open discussion. That's also part of the reason why Drew's not with us, actually, so <laughs> so that we can talk <laughs> for real. Okay, okay, okay. Well, then, okay. So knowing that, again, it comes back for me to this. I, I'm not sure. So what does it mean then for Kripke to have chosen this particular aesthetic, given that, you know, his his show is literally entering an incredibly religious period um, where he's talking and subverting a lot of, of religious narratives, particularly Christian narratives, of course, to choose something that is, is about the basically coming out of religion and exploring other things? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um almost almost twofold right um and again we won't get like too deep into it just yet but even the first painting dean spots which is another by sean honore and i won't say his last name because i can't do it <laughs> i've tried it doesn't work you say it beautifully you said it really well in your tiktok <laughs> i forget that's that was a long time ago i don't know <laughs> anyway but the uh, the other sean honore fragonaut piece um that we see is the first painting that Dean really looks at. And that has elements of deception in it. So okay. I could almost kind of see on one hand, it's looking at these pieces of work and these are the distracting pieces, right? They're focused on maybe earthly pleasures only for the reveal to happen. And we're backsliding into this religious imagery. Um, but another thing, and going back to how Rochelle was talking about looking at art in a historical context. Um, Rococo was very popular throughout Western Europe, but I think in part maybe just because of our own hindsight, um, a lot of artists that we look at who were who specialized in Rococo and painted a lot of these Rococo pieces were French, and the Rococo period did seem to almost culminate in this horrific ending with the French Revolution in the late uh, 1700s. You know, we have so many pieces of Rococo in the UK and other European countries because of these post-revolutionary sales that all of these aristocrats, um, their belongings were being sent to all of these other places to get them out of the country. So having these paintings, which within that context seem to, um, you know, be leading up to this horrible, bloody revolution that people still remember today as being mm. horrible and bloody. Um, within the context of this, these apocalyptic events also does seem fitting. 
Yeah, of course. Okay, so when you add that context, it starts making a lot more sense for me because um, there's also that idea, you talked about deception and there's this idea of trickery also that is put on by heaven, particularly by Zachariah. Um, I think he also presents him with beer and burgers, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. in that room. Yep. Yeah, there you go. Yep. So again, like the earthly pleasures of of food and uh, and wine, I guess. He also, I can't remember who it is, but he he's basically suggesting to Dean he can conjure up some actresses he had a crush on. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes. Um, so basically a lot of earthly pleasures. I'm always very reluctant to give Eric Kripke any kind of credit for anything, but then I'm faced with these moments and I'm like, damn, that was really well thought out. I have no other option but to give credit here. Yeah, I feel like I agree with you. It just, it's so fascinating to me too, because it's also, it's, it's also a return to um, like Greek mythology and, you know, uh, Roman mythology. So that, that, you know, and we'll get into this more with the paintings that we'll, we'll discuss shortly. That's a lot more of those, those, um, you know, they're using Venus in, in Mm. some of them. There's, there's all these little sort of nods to a time gone by, which is pre pre pre-religion you know, when you think about it. So was did he sit there and did he think all of this through? Like, I just, I just have such a hard time believing it, but at the same time, it's so well thought out. So I'm like, well, you have to have thought of this and you have to obviously be saying something with the works of art that you put up there. Either way, somebody thought about it, whether it's Kripke or somebody he hired, somebody thought about this and put this together. And I think that it's really brilliant. Are there any specific paintings that you'd like to talk about in the green room I know that the swing is displayed so prominently Jen you're laughing about it (laughs) do you want to dive into the swing you know it's interesting right because that particular wall when we look it's there's a fireplace um a and I don't I don't believe it's been identified as of yet, maybe unidentified landscape in the middle. And then bracketing those two are the two pieces by Jean Honoré, the swing on one side and Blindman's Bluff on the other side. And then also um, I did look up where they were, the Wallace collection has the swing, um, but Blindman's Bluff is actually at a, believe a museum in Ohio and Eric Kripke is from Ohio. So that's pure speculation, but I do wonder if maybe he saw it in person. Interesting. I'm honestly, I don't know which one to discuss first. I guess we could just, we could go into the swing first um, because uh, I'm trying to think of like a, a a good way to say this, but my notes just really say, again, what the fuck was this? Um, <laughs> a very good question. I, you know, and... I, I mentioned this before the recording. I only took one art history class. I really do enjoy art history um, and, and looking up all of the, the greater meaning behind pieces of, pieces of art. But I do think there are some pieces where even without the historical context of what's going on, um, a lay person might be able to look at a particular work and go, hmm, something's a little strange about this. And I do think the swing might kind of be an example of that where you look at it and you're thinking, there's something here. Yeah. And the something here is a lot, a lot of sexual undertones, maybe to the point of being overtones. 
definitely the audiences at the time would have found a lot of the stuff going on very obvious. Yeah, it was actually very shocking as a painting when it first came out. In fact, I think the person who commissioned it couldn't even look at the painting when <laughs> when it was delivered because it was so sexual for for the time. And I think like what it is, it is like sort of the quintessential Rococo piece of work, right? So if you're going to look at any five minute documentary or anything where it's like a survey of art overview of it, this is going to be the one they're going to take. Uh, they're going to walk you through. It's very obvious and it kind of goes through everything that's really uh, um, part of that time period. So I think it's just such a fascinating choice also because of the sexual over overtones. I think we could say pretty much <laughs> like the person is staring straight up the skirt. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a shocking choice, I guess, uh, when you're looking at and what's happening in that room in general. So again, like just for, for context, for people who may not be familiar with the painting, would, would one of you kind of mind explaining what, what is on the painting and what it represents basically? Um, so like we had mentioned, this is one of the most iconic Rococo paintings. Um, the, and there is a lot of different symbols and actions kind of depicted in the painting, which is why people come away from it saying that this is a very sexualized painting, despite the fact that they're all wearing clothes. Um, the swing itself, the action of going up and down, um, a lot of people have kind of attributed that to its own, um, you know, sexual activities. Um, the most obvious one, however, is probably the fact that if you look at the painting, there's a man in the foreground looking up the woman's skirt. And at the time in the 1700s, there was no women's underwear, really. There were stockings and that was about it. So um, an alternate title of this painting is also called The Happy Accident of the Swing to further maybe indicate what's going on. Um, and there's a few other smaller uh, symbols there. Um, there's a dog, if you look, the woman's being pushed by this older man, presumably her husband, um, and there's a small lap dog near him. And traditionally, dogs have always been used as a symbol of fidelity, loyalty. Sometimes when um, noblemen would get their uh, marriage portraits done, you would see dogs pictured there to symbolize, you know, this loyalty. Well, this dog is barking. The man pushing the swing doesn't seem to notice this, but clearly that's some indication that there are alarm bells going off there. Um, and then uh, another uh, indication that, you know, there, there's probably an affair going on, right, is that we also see these statues of cupids. I've also seen some um, analysis of the painting called them putos, which were more commonly used in the Renaissance era, but um, both of them were kind of depicting this, this idea of love, putos more specifically were this profane passion. Um, and one of them, of course, the one above the man who's kneeling so we can look at the woman's skirt, uh, has its fingers to its lips in a shushing motion, you know, like keeping this sort of secret. So it's very clearly depicting some sort of affair that's going on. Um, and again, why was it here? <laughs> <laughs> why indeed why indeed especially with all of the I mean obviously so I'm I'm I mean I'm saying obviously but clearly it's not obvious to everyone I I'm relating this to what literally the conversation that happens just a little bit later which is Dean and Cass uh who are having a conversation about Cass's lily white ass um and it sort of makes me wonder again why why the message that we're getting from the episode versus the message that we got afterwards from the creators 
about the nature of that relationship was so different. I will say also when I was going back through to look up the different analysis of these paintings, um, mm -hmm. I, I did find, I think, some older live journals. And it was old as in the season five hadn't come out yet. Okay. People were looking through these paintings. And uh, two of them I saw, uh, the two that I found, interestingly, looked at the swing and were kind of saying that they felt Dean was almost this figure on the swing. Mm -hmm. Both of them were saying that he was being pushed towards Michael as if having an affair with Michael with heaven being pushed away from Castiel. Whereas I think, um, I would say maybe all of us just within the context of the next 10 seasons would probably argue against that. And we're thinking this is uh, almost predicting or foreshadowing this moment in this episode where Cass literally steals Dean away from heaven. Right, literally. Yeah, that's how I see it. It was all, it feels much more like that. If you're thinking about, if you strip away just for the, the, the analysis here, sort of that maybe coy sexual undertone, overtone of this, and you're just thinking about it specifically as like somebody who is being, you know, um, yeah, yeah, like obviously being pushed towards something, but sort of a duplicity and, 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 um, something happening that the other person might not be aware of. I think that that kind of makes a lot of sense. He's being pushed towards Castiel without them really realizing what they're doing mm -hmm. um, through their actions. Right. I, I, it, you're right. Even if we remove the sexual nature here um, for a second, put a little pin in it. I think that it still, it still shows like that there's a sway between his, it, he's basically, Dean is in, a situation where he's trying to figure out where his allegiance allegiances truly lie and who mm -hmm. who is loyal to him and who he will choose to be loyal to as well absolutely yeah definitely i was going to move us along towards the other fragonard painting because i think it's really interesting to sort of like talk about it um so i don't know jen if you wanted to kind of give a little bit of this like uh an overview of what that second one is there because i think that the two of them juxtaposed next to each other is also a very fascinating choice yeah definitely so the next one is it was painted a little bit earlier than the swing um and it's called blind man's bluff and as i had mentioned it's the first painting that dean that we're shown dean looking at so you know it's a huge painting I'm um, still very bright colors, everything. We see um, a man and a woman and they're in this pastoral costume. She's The woman's dressed up as a shepherdess and she has a blindfold on and she's going down these steps and it's sort of staged in a way where at first you think, oh no, she's going to fall and you get this certain uh, depiction of what it is, right? But then it's only on the second viewing or a closer viewing that you realize that the painting itself is full of deception, which mm -hmm. I think is very interesting. For one, the woman, if you look up closely, she can see under the blindfold that her eyes peeking out a little bit. Um, you know, again, there is a lot of the sexual undertones, overtones with this painting. So, um, you know, this is most likely uh, two very wealthy French noblemen who are dressing up and doing some sort of flirtatious play as a prelude to sex, perhaps. Um, but the, there's so many things here that, you know, they're not reflecting reality the costumes for one we can look more closely at the background and realize it's not really anything it's more of a backdrop so it's this literal play that's being put on all of this pretense that's happening 
um, which I found very interesting. You know, the idea that uh, you you walk into or observe this situation, and then upon closer inspection, you realize actually all of this is fake. Ooh, yes. <laughs> So those were kind of the main things there, especially considering, like I had said, this is the first painting Dean is shown to really be looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, later on, Zachariah comes in and ends up revealing that a lot of this is fake. The idea that heaven has been working to stop the apocalypse has been fake. And then, Mm -hmm. um, as we had mentioned, you know, going into spoilery territory, we could talk about um, so many future seasons being fake in a way. For sure. I think there's a, this also kind of speaks to Dean being at a stage where he's realizing that a lot of um, the quest of his father in, during Dean's childhood, um, I don't want to say was fake, but was definitely full of deceptions um, for a lot of reasons. You know, I think that Dean is in the process of kind of realizing what really happened in his childhood, that he wasn't actually, you know, like this wonderful, mature child uh, who was helping his father through uh, a difficult time. He was a parentified child who was essentially being abused and and neglected. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, too, um, another interesting facet kind of going back to... um, or rather, I kind of view the swing as more relating to Dean. I think they can, both of these paintings could relate to Dean and Cass, but for some reason I have in my head that the swing is is more indicative of maybe Dean going back and forth between maybe what he has to do, what he wants to do, um, that sort of thing, his relationship with Cass. And then uh, Blind Man's Bluff, I think, is also maybe indicative of Dean and Cass's relationship. Um, I keep going back to the central figure of the woman, you know, historically, right, a lot of women, pretty much all women have had to put on airs whenever, uh, you know, romance or sex is concerned, um, that they weren't interested, they had to be chased, right, you Mm -hmm. never wanted to get labeled as quote unquote easy. So you have sort of this idea where the woman probably knows she's being seduced, wants to be seduced, but she has to pretend she's blind to it, right, she can't come out and admit it. And um, so that that kind of makes me think of Castiel as well, who throughout this entire season has admitted several times, basically, that he's getting too close to Dean. Um, He's having doubts with heaven, with his own duties, because he's being confronted with Dean so often. Um, And he keeps letting Dean drag him to this way of thinking, even though back in the, the Rapture season four, episode 20, he seemed, you know, he was going to listen to heaven. He wasn't going to listen to anyone else. Well, he ends up being swayed yet again. Um, and it's it, one has to wonder specifically why Dean is the one who keeps dragging Cass back to this way of thinking, right? It's never mm-hmm. anyone else. It's Dean. And it kind of stays Dean throughout the entire series. Right. I don't think that Cass really listens to anybody other than Dean. Perhaps perhaps Kelly Klein in later seasons, but that's that's about it. Yeah, yeah. And he 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 has special relationships or he's friends with, becomes familiar with different people. But, you know, in terms of the maybe percentage of times that someone's been able to convince Cass to do anything, the one who's <laughs> going to win. Is- <laughs> I feel like we can easily say that nobody has ever convinced Cass to do anything he didn't want to do unless it was Dean. 
<laughs> like that yeah. that's fine that works <laughs> yeah well you know I'm just gonna say that this is also oftentimes interpreted as uh, a depiction of courtship so you know if we're looking at it of course <laughs> that makes a lot of sense yeah. And it also ties in nicely, like I think, because we talked about Dean being in this motion of sway, but I think that Jen, like you said, Cass is also very much there. Like where does, where does his own allegiances lie? Where do his own allegiances lie? And who is he going to be loyal to? And we talked about that with Drew in the episode and we clearly state that he chooses Dean again and again and again. Absolutely. And I think both, again, like there's just so much here in the juxtaposition of having both of them how it relates to uh, both Dean and Castiel. And also just sort of, I think, um, shows, like it's very contextual and where everything is also happening in the episode. So I think that that's what's really lovely about the choice of these two pieces is that you can look at it in terms of the relationship between the two of them as characters, but also their relationship to like the larger happenings in the universe at that particular time. So um, I like, again, and this is what's so fascinating about different works of art is that they, you can see them from different facets and you can interpret them in different ways. And they're really, they speak to um, a lot of the elements that are happening in the episode at that moment. And the, all the, so the dynamics between the, the various characters um, and obviously Rococo being what it is as an art form, a transition period, a period away from, from what was once there. Also fascinatingly, <laughs> A period of time which was like um, so interested in not being Baroque. So like it, but also like, so a good way of looking at it is like they would use like silver because silver was like lighter and it was pastel colors. And it was all about frivolity and all about this, this sort of like idea of like, let's just escape and have like a lot of fun and not think about all of those really you know, um, more like gold over the top, heavily ornamented um, ideas of decoration. For some reason, as you're mentioning this, I'm thinking of millennial pink, uh, which has a similar, I guess, contextual and historical meaning nowadays. <laughs> um, so if we can take kind of just a quick step back to to look at Rococo as like a style and why uh, more narratively, why would the angels choose to put, or why would Zechariah choose to put Dean in a room that is so opulent and present him with beer and burgers? Like, why not? If if the goal was truly to seduce Dean into doing whatever heaven wanted him to do, why didn't they just like create a dive bar for Dean to just hang out in, play pool, hustle some people? drink beer, eat a burger. Why this room? So this is what I find so interesting. And I wonder if it has something to do with like wanting to differentiate other moments in the show where they've gone to areas that are supposed to be meaningful that have that backdrop that is more like, you know, you can think of the the roadhouse or these places that like, perhaps it was, it was a way of saying, we we need to show a story we need this to 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 reveal that it is heaven that it's something there that is not truly about the person so there's only some elements in it like we're going to give them the food we're going to give them the beer 
but there's all this deceit behind that. So the space itself is not the pure, perfect comfort. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I just try to think about it. Like, I think it might've been a creative decision to just really clearly delineate. This is a deceitful area, just a, just a theory. I don't know, Jen, if you have any sort of other interpretations. I mean, you're really coming at me for the whole not watching this series. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. No, no, it's okay. Because um, I believe Adam ends up in this room later in season five. And it seems, I'm not too sure on the paintings themselves if those have changed a little bit, but the room itself is still the same. Um, Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things is, I'm not necessarily saying Zachariah personally created this room, but he's, um, I think more so than some of the other angels we see throughout the series, almost um, overzealous and also seems to enjoy being cruel, seems to enjoy messing with Sam and Dean and inflicting pain on them to get what he wants. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... um, you know, and and even throughout this episode, we can tell that he can read Dean's mind and he has no qualms about purposefully reading his mind. So clearly he, he would have been able to maybe get some idea of what he would really want, like a dive bar, as you guys were saying, but he has this room instead. And I think um, we do see way back in season one, um, there is this one other episode, Provenance, where it's, it's more surrounding art and everything. And we see this throughout the rest of the series as well, whenever Dean is presented as being um, having to blend in with maybe this more polite society. He's very uncomfortable. He's very resistant to it. He has no experience navigating that. Um, and I think a lot of individuals, Dean and even other people in real life, I think if they were presented with just suddenly being dropped into a very opulent room with a lot of very... Um, expensive, probably priceless pieces of art and furniture, they would probably be very uncomfortable. So I I think maybe it was purposefully done, um, maybe not uh, to, to throw him off guard. Maybe Zachariah was almost so convinced that this was a foregone conclusion. Um, right. He didn't really necessarily feel the need to seduce Dean or lead him into this sort of ease at all. Right. I think I tend to, I think I tend to agree with that. I, I really like, I think like Rochelle mentioned, I like the idea that the room feels so outside of time and space, uh, especially compared to, to the rest of the series. But I, I genuinely think that the goal was to, to make Dean feel small uh, in that moment and to make him more likely to agree to people that he would see as superior to him. Because although that, we can agree that the righteous man might not be inferior to angels. Uh, I think he would definitely see himself that way, whether it's uh, angels because they're angels or it's people who live, I think, as you mentioned, uh, as polite society in these beautiful rooms kind of thing. It's so, it's so different from the spaces that he frequents. Right. And so again, it, it kind of also comes back to, I think they're really trying to show that. So Mary, like, it makes total sense where you're thinking it's made to make Dean feel small, but it's also made for the viewers to see that this is something that is very different. Right. It's not the the, the normal ins and outs, motels and bars and, and back alleys and roads, you know, like that they normally frequent. It's really, and it's funny because if we're thinking of provenance, that space was a Sam story, right? It wasn't a Dean story, centric story. So here I think it really does, uh, 
does reveal a lot of what you just you just mentioned, Mary. Well, something that we've discussed, I think, on the podcast is that Sam does have more class mobility than Dean because of I think because of his uh, university education. I also find it interesting that the we find out in season five that the 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 beautiful room is actually just like in like in a in a warehouse. So all of this is is deceit upon deceit upon deceit. It's like the appearance of of opulence and and the thing is we have to remember also that at that time wealth was associated with value. So um and virtue particularly. So like this virtuous room with all of these beautiful paintings is actually just in a warehouse somewhere. That's that's I don't want to scratch at that in terms of how that what that means in terms of of religion and how how the creators view heaven. I agree. <laughs> it's for, probably not for this show <laughs> or this episode tonight today. <laughs> um, do we want to move on to maybe another painting? Um that is really interesting because it's in a different style. Yes, please. Um, so we've talked a lot about Rococo, but I see, um, Jen, that you had made some notes, which I find really fascinating, about uh, two pieces that are very, very much cemented into the Baroque um, uh, period. So maybe we want to talk about the Claude Lorraine paintings that are up on the wall. Yeah, definitely. Um... I don't know if you wanted to also break down these uh, these paintings. Um, definitely from the show notes, I, I think I had more to say on the Rococo pieces, but these I did think were interesting. They're kind of depicting different Greek and Roman uh, mythology, and one in particular had uh, Hermes. So you know we have to throw that one in there. No, oh, yes, of course, <laughs> yes, please, always, always Hermes, <laughs> the trickster. Yeah, and that particular painting, uh, what is it? Landscape of Apollo guarding the herds of Admetus. Um, so that one definitely has Hermes being a bit of a trickster. Um, the piece, and that that actually was showing showcasing this particular myth that looks like where Apollo had to be a shepherd for a period of years before he could return to Mount Olympus. And um, during that time, Hermes was from what I could understand, playing a trick on the god and stealing some of the cattle away, and, and he's seen shepherding it away. And um, two things that I thought were really interesting about that piece, uh, the first one, of course, is we have this god stealing away this other god's almost property or thing that he owned or was supposed to keep watch over, which, again, I'm thinking of the swing, I'm thinking of Cass busting Dean out of the mm -hmm. room. The other thing I thought, and this is not necessarily unique to this particular painting, um, it was really common, especially back in the day where, you know, these older pieces of art, where if you wanted to draw a certain biblical figure or mythological figure, you would draw them with certain things that the public would uh, know was going to indicate that this was the figure they were looking at. So, um, Apollo being uh, associated with different musical instruments, he's shown with this particular stringed instrument um, at his feet. So that's probably so anyone who's viewing it is like, oh, okay, that's that God that we're looking at. But this story of Hermes stealing 
uh, stealing part of this herd away, the actual myth kind of concludes with Hermes giving him that stringed instrument as sort of an apology to end the fighting. But here, of mm. course, it appears earlier. Um, so this, so again, we kind of have this, you know, we know probably this was just put in there so the artist could clearly indicate that this was Apollo that we were looking at, but we have this um, sort of muddling of what is and was and isn't real or what happened, really happened in this story versus how it's depicted. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought that that instrument appearing there um, almost out of time was kind of another interesting feature. But so I could speak a bit to the actual time period because this is what's really fascinating. So whereas Rococo is sort of characterized as that transition away from the church. So what's really interesting about the um, Rococo period is that it's really a move away from, you know, an emphasis on the... Um, like the royalty and all of these, you know, wealth being held by like, you know, one big family and a move towards more of the, um, uh, like a wealth of distribution across multiple like uh, wealthy families, right? Interesting. The Baroque period, which is so fascinating is that it is intrinsically linked to the Catholic church. It's, it is religion. It's about devotion. It's about um, idolization. And it's always, it's very religious. And it's also a period of time where you would probably recognize a lot of the names because you've got Caravaggio um, and right. you've got Rembrandt and Velasquez and Vermeer and Rubens. Um, and so you have a lot of those really famous paintings um, and they're always really about this something being bigger than the religious symbolism is undeniable. And so to have these two Baroque paintings in this room, which are so so entrenched in religion um, and the church, and then to have these two uh, Rococo paintings, which are representing that sort of move away and everything that we just analyzed, I think is a really fascinating choice. And so just, just to kind of refresh my own memory, because I haven't watched the episode again for this for this recording, these paintings are all displayed together right in the first half of uh the green room basically or the beautiful room before it switches yeah yeah right okay yeah and I also think as Rochelle pointed out the the Baroque and the Rococo together is really interesting we already talked about how individually these paintings I think are odd choices maybe, very fitting choices, but also why these particular ones. Um, and I, I think like the mixing of the different genres, and then there are other paintings as well. There are different landscapes that don't have figures really, so we, we, we won't discuss those, but I believe there are eight paintings in this room, and then when it switches, an additional eight paintings appear. But the fact that there is both Baroque Rococo pieces together, it, to me, um, it, it almost indicates that this is like a personal collection, someone's personal collection. If you go through like the Wallace collection, which was a uh, a Marquis personal collection, um, or if you're going to the Frick collection in New York or any anything where usually a wealthy person donates their personal collection to as a museum, you get a very interesting mixture of different pieces. But if you're going to a larger establishment like the Metropolitan Museum of Art 
all of these things are going to be separated. You're not, you're going to have Rococo maybe next to the Baroque, but they're going to be in separate galleries. So the fact that they're mixed together, I think is also a really interesting choice. Like family pictures almost. Yeah, yeah. These these are the things that that particular collector found maybe very personally fascinating. And so that's why they're together in that way. So would you would you think of this collection as Zachariah's personal collection or God's personal collection? Well, Zachariah himself even said that God's left the building, I think even in this episode. Um, I can't remember if this is this was pre-show talk, but we I did touch on how I thought it was interesting that we have these older pieces of art versus maybe more modern pieces, which I feel like also nowadays in media, if you want to show someone maybe being very wealthy or even maybe uh, some some level of evil, you're going to have these weird and comprehensible modern paintings. That's kind of where we've hit it now, you know, yes. right? Um, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I'm actually rewatching Daredevil and that is literally a plot point in that show. So yeah, yes, yes, literally. Like the first season there. Listen, there's nothing wrong with abstract expressionism. That was one of the first American born art movements, I believe. <laughs> I don't know. I like a good Rothko. That is like <laughs> evil. Um, but yeah, so it's part of me <laughs> is just like, because I need to have a good laugh. I just felt that maybe it was because uh, the angels really hadn't been on earth for long periods of time oh. since maybe this point. So maybe that's why you're pulling from this particular thing. You're not, you know, they're not going to pull, say, Keith Haring, you know, that's maybe too bright and too colorful and too fun. Um, and so they want that, but yeah. <laughs> hmm. To tie it also to the depictions of heaven later in the in the series I think it's also really important to realize like this is really tied to Eric Kripke and I think that you you may have already mentioned this but because later on I think if they were to have to cr create uh if the creators had to depict a beautiful room of their own I think they would have probably gone for a much more modern aesthetic uh with abstract paintings that um would seem unapproachable to people who don't necessarily know much about, about art and art history. Yeah. So this is very Kripke-esque uh, and it's, ve it's very much tied to his own legacy on the show. Yeah. This is his personal collection. <laughs> his personal collection. I mean, I don't, maybe he was hitting up that Toledo museum and he was really thinking about blind man's bluff. Maybe. Honestly, I need to know. I need to know who chose these paintings. I need to know. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. This is this has been really on my mind for a while. Uh, I'm trying to think, too, of like, this is after Kripke, but during uh, Ben Edlund's the, the Man Who Would Be King, right, episode, and I'm assuming... We're talking to to Raphael Castiel and Raphael are talking. And even that room, it was, from what I remember, like a dark, dark wood, kind of, you know, wealthy library office type thing. It wasn't quite right. the same, but it definitely wasn't, you know, this this massive white warehouse of nothing. Right. Yeah. So That's... I do also think that it it is representative of a time where, you know, these sort of um, religious paintings were really, really prominent and that the tide of the Catholic Church was so 
it, it was like, it was there, right? Like you couldn't, you couldn't deny it. It was part of everything. It was still, there was no real separation of church and state at the time just yet. Mm-hmm. And so there's probably, I think some sort of sense of putting, putting together that ideal that this is, this is just on the cusp of this moment where God's left the building. You know, this is, we're just, the period of time is changing. Yeah. I mean, philosophy wise, it makes a lot of sense that the, the Baroque paintings would be there, especially given how much, uh, how important the ancient Greeks, like ancient Greek philosophy and teachings were in that specific time period for the Catholic Church and how much of biblical interpretations within the Catholic Church actually come from Aristotle, surprisingly. So I think the Baroque makes a lot more sense than the Rococo to me at first um, at first viewing. But again, I, I, I like this idea that, you know, God has left the building. And so now we're showcasing the swing. Yeah, because it's that transition period, right? So it's like the first time where after, it's not the first time, it's after a long period of time where you're actually starting to kind of move away. But like the the Baroque period was really heavy on on religious artwork, right? So you're kind of, you're kind of moving out of that. It's interesting to me. And I think, you know, Jen, you keep saying modern art. It's, it's fascinating that they didn't do some sort of like very stark contrast, if maybe that's what they were getting at, where they would maybe do something that was like very clearly like, you know, the death of painting or the death, like something very modern where, you know, you could kind of just really show that. But uh, another thing is, that painting by the swing is just like so obvious. It's just so well known that perhaps that was also another choice. It's just that we'll get something that's really easy for the viewers to kind of understand. Um, and if you've ever, you know, done any sort of minor Googling of art, Beth Frank and our painting is going to show up right away. Right. So to make it more gonna... approachable, I guess, to viewers. Yeah. To kind of just, you know, have an entry point for people because it's it's hard you look at a painting no matter what and unless you have some understanding of all the little elements of it you're not going to get maybe the full picture on first viewing right sure i would argue that supernatural does that a lot with their pop culture references as well but this time they're choosing mm-hmm. fine art which Absolutely. Um, probably feels very different for the viewers because they're not used to it This week, we have a voicemail from Mason. Now, this voicemail includes a major spoiler, which is why we're answering it without Drew. Uh, So if you are avoiding supernatural spoilers, we recommend that you skip ahead. Hi, my name is Mason. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm going to be bringing to you two and listeners the idea that John is supposed to be equivalent to God in some ways in my own head more literal than others um so this is gonna kind of be split up into two parts one spoiler free as much as i could make it while still being cohesive and the other not so much so especially drew if you want to just tune out after the first part that's entirely fine by me keep the surprise but um for anyone who's willing to take the risk i have so much to say about this so spoiler free part There will come a point in season five, a major theme, that the Winchesters are going to align with another heavenly family. And while they dance around the idea of the patriarchs of the families matching in the way that they treated their kids respectively, 
I feel like they could have taken a more direct route with it. And I feel like that was directly stopped by the death of John Winchester in season two, episode one, In My Time of Dying. So going into a little bit more detail now, Drew, for your own health, at your own risk, turn your ears off, or don't listen to me. I have no authority over you. You have free will. We know that Lucifer is supposed to mirror Sam, and Michael's supposed to mirror Dean in season five. And that in season five and onward, John and God are compared several times, mostly in angsty ways comparing how they treated their kids. And CW could have taken this to its fullest potential by making John be the true vessel of God. Or at least the intended vessel of God, because we all know the Winchesters would try to find some way around it. I feel like he would be a more appropriate vessel than Chuck. Just as Dean has always been ineffably intended to be Michael's vessel, and I've heard that happens later on, even though I haven't gotten to it yet, and how Sam was ineffably Lucifer's true vessel, and that it happens for like half a second at the end of season five, I think in my own version of Supernatural that I made up in my head that is immediately better in so many different ways, John was meant to be God's vessel. Just as Mary was meant to be the... Mary from Christian Analogies. But because John summoned Azazel at the start of season two, and because Azazel unexpectedly asked him for more than the cult and took his life, the natural order of things, which is already brought up as a theme several times in episodes that I adore, was thrown out of loop and God needed a new vessel. And I know later on that it's explained that in The Monster at the End of This Book, it's still just God acting clueless the entire time. But honestly, I really don't like that plot. I don't think Chuck is that smart. <laughs> I think in my theory, that really was just a really tired, confused, terrified author getting strange visions about tall, hunky hunters shooting demons. And God needed to make a last-minute vessel decision because his true vessel was just shot. My question is... Why draw so much attention to the whole Vessel bloodline plot, especially shown with Jimmy in the rapture, if all the Winchesters are connected to God's kids, but God's Vessel is just some dude? Thoughts, opinions, analyses, anything. I need to get this out there. This is something that's been bothering me for a long time now. I love the show so much. Um, thank you for your time. I mean, I have to say that when Mason talked about, first of all, Mason, thank you so much for your voicemail. Uh, as always, I love to hear all of the theories. And this is one that I've been hearing about quite a bit, that basically uh, the Chuck that we see in the early seasons is truly Chuck and not God as Chuck. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. I, in the sense that I can see it, I just don't know if that's my understanding of it. Um, and I absolutely do agree that the version of Supernatural that we all have in our heads is infinitely better <laughs> than the version of Supernatural that we tend to see on the screen. So that's that's definitely one thing uh, where I entirely agree with you, Mason. Um, Jen, do you have any thoughts about this voicemail? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting. Mason talks about this natural order of things and how this natural order of things gets interrupted um 
And, you know, on the one, it, it's tricky, right? I feel like when we look at the entire scope of all 15 seasons and we look at, okay, what things maybe was uh, Chuck or God intending to happen the entire time right. and what things ended up getting thwarted, right? And, um, you know, I think, and this is me just coming off of season two. Um, I spent a lot of time with season two in recent months, right? Right. Um, and I'm a little, I, I enjoy the theory. I'm a little hesitant to look at it through that lens because I think when we look holistically at specifically season two, mm-hmm. I felt that John, the natural order of things was for John to get out of the way. Um, otherwise, I don't think Dean would have sold his soul at the end of that season leading to, you know, season four, The Righteous Man, all of that. But that also, I, I think, though, one of the other great things Mason kind of brings up, in part, John possibly being God's vessel, is also just the role that these that the different Winchesters play. Because another popular theory or discussion is also if John was maybe supposed to be the righteous man, did he or did he not break in hell? Because, you know, we have Alistair say in season four to Dean that he never broke, um, but then we have you know, a lot of other people maybe who have less positive outlooks on John thinking that Alistair was just saying that to Dean to get to him. And he absolutely did break within that time period. Yeah. So I, I, I I do enjoy looking at, you know, the possible outcomes that we could have had with John and what his maybe role was supposed to be. And if Mm -hmm. it played out as it should have, or if it got interrupted. I, I I guess the thing and and maybe this is disrupting my view on the my prejudice really on the show because I always saw Castiel as the only one with free will uh throughout the series or at least with the possibility of of changing Chuck's plans to think that John would also have that capacity like sort of like it does not please me <laughs> um give him the credit he right there you go but I think that this is such an interesting thought process because again like I I really enjoy when people have an opinion that's so different from mine because it it pushes me to kind of rethink about how I think of things and I tend to get into ruts especially because sometimes you know we're like so close we're we're kind of like missing the forest for the trees with the kind of exercise that we're doing on the podcast so yeah, I really appreciate that because it's uh, a lot of food for thought for me. I am not used to uh, thinking about this um, <laughs> after a voicemail. And I feel like I have a lot of thoughts, but yeah, I think, I don't know. I don't even know where to start. You've stumped me, Mason. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what I thought. So I think it's interesting, like you said, to see a different sort of perspective on things. And I kind of maybe want to take that away and think about it and ruminate on it. Um, Cause I forgot, I feel like I have thinking to do now. <laughs> you gave us homework, Mason. <laughs> you yeah. gave us homework. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, you mentioned the, uh, uh, you know, that you've been really immersed in season two and that you're doing a very long fic. Is that something that you'd like to tell us a little bit about? Yeah, it's on my mind all the time. I think, you know, once you write over 500,000 words for one story, I think you mm-hmm. can just keep it in your brain forever. Oh my gosh, that's just, that's, that's 
Wow. Yeah. But, um, you know, so yeah, I wrapped up season two. We're, we're into the last part, which is a rewrite of season three. Um, but there, you know what, though? There is a lot of stuff just since Mason, Mason's voicemail, some of the aspects of even the paintings we were discussing do take on this meta narrative. And so I think it's interesting. Some people have asked if I'm going to rewrite like the entire series, all 15 seasons. Absolutely not. <laughs> no way. No fucking way. Mm-hmm. You say that now. <laughs> it when I came out with the idea, uh, because I was so angry at the finale, um, and yeah. I was at home with COVID, and it just hit me, and it hasn't stopped hitting me, I guess. Um, mm. But when I came up with the concept of the story, I, I knew where it was going, and I knew where it would end. So we're heading towards the ending. Um, but it's really interesting to look at uh, these metatextual pieces, which Supernatural has always flirted with, and this story definitely has. A lot of elements of it, which will become, I think, more prominent later, um, later on throughout like the final arc. Well, Rochelle, Jen, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Uh, Jen, thank you for spending time with us uh, this this evening. It's really wonderful to be able to collaborate with you. Uh, I followed your TikTok for some time, and every time I see one of your TikToks, I'm like, oh, what what am I going to learn today? <laughs> it's always always fun. Thank you. I will say um, myself too. One of the other great things I think with that really long fic is I try to treat it as a love letter to supernatural derisively but also to the fandom very positively and actually I think if you scroll through some of the author's notes there's at least one or two mentions of carrying wayward um for the early episodes I really did appreciate having these deeper dives and I think aspects of where I took the characters and where I took parts of the story probably wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been following the podcast so oh my gosh a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of really awesome back and forth collaboration that happens in the fandom and that definitely has purposefully influenced the story so yeah oh honestly like I can't describe to you how much that means to me (laughs) um I'm blushing actually but yeah I mean honestly if if we decided to start this podcast before we saw the finale. And then when we saw the finale, we had, well, I certainly had a moment of like, do I even want to do this anymore? Uh, and I know that Rochelle was with me, uh, like having that conversation with me. And we decided to go ahead and see where it went. And uh, what really has kept me motivated and kept us motivated is, is this, it's the fandom, it's these conversations, it's, um, it's how good the story can be once we reclaim it and once we once we get to decide where that legacy ends up. Um, you know, the creators had their chance and now it's our turn. Um, now for our listeners, if you don't already, uh, go follow Jen on TikTok, uh, Twitter, and AO3. Her handle is Rupert Gaze. That is R-U-P-E-R-T-G-A-Y-E-S. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon by heading over to carryingwayward.com. And as always, carry on our wayward friends. To join our coffee or Patreon by heading over to carryingwayward.com. And as always, Jen, do you want to say (laughs) it?
That goes in the bloopers, Mary. <laughs> yeah, that goes in the bloopers for sure. <laughs> I got really excited. <laughs>